This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 594. And the quote of the day is, the function of music is to release us from the tyranny of conscious thought. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 594, and we're getting close to the end of the year, which is crazy. I don't know how it became. I think it went January, February, December. So uh, I hope all is well in your world. I hope you're hanging in there, and I hope you are looking favorably towards 2021, and I hope you got some cool stuff on the horizon as uh, as, as I do. So um, this is an episode that was released back in February of 2017. And you know that I like to go in the vault once in a while and pull some of these back out to the top because this is buried. This is, you know, it was two episode 245. We're at almost 600 now. So, and the the way that I decide which ones get pulled out of the vault and brought to the top is whether it be based on a conversation that I've had with someone or based on some things that are happening online, you know, conversations that I'm having with people on Instagram or Facebook or something like that. And this in particular is from a conversation that I was having with a good buddy of mine, Nash, uh, today about, about playing with records. And he was, he was the guitar player in my band for, for a long time. And we were just talking about the importance of, of playing with records. And Nate and I talk about this in this episode a lot. Uh, but we get all, we get into a lot of different stuff about like vocalizing drum parts and the effectiveness of recording your practice routine and what practice means to him and playing melodically and all that. And I just thought that it was it, this conversation is really really good, and I know that it can serve a lot of you well. And like I said, this episode is almost three years old at this point, so uh, or almost four years old at this point. So I know that some of you may not have heard it or whatever. So anyway, we're pulling it out of the vault. This is with Nate Smith, and I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with my man. Nate, what's going on, man? Thank you for doing this. Hey, Nick. Good to be with you, man. This has been a long time coming. It has. <laughs> it I'm, uh, has. I'm pinching it's been an myself. Epic journey. Right here. Yeah, man. <laughs> and you know, it's it's sort of a testament to. I don't know, maybe it's a life lesson there that like I told you the first time I ever emailed you was five years ago. That's right. And and then from then, like I started the podcast and I've been, you know, trying to get you on. Schedules don't line up and things. But yeah. you know, once in a while I think that people look at that if it doesn't happen immediately, then they just right. stop and it's like Man, Yeah. Things yeah. sometimes things take time. I'll tell you. I'll you tell know? you. I mean, there's a there's a life lesson in there, man. You know, it's like uh if at first if at first you don't succeed. Right. You know, just keep not succeeding. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> kind of or in my world, I'm like, just keep keep bugging and emailing, and then yeah. what? It'll happen. What? <laughs> it'll happen. It'll happen, man. It'll happen. But I, I appreciate your persistence, man. Thank you. Of course, man. It's been uh, I've been following your journey for a long time. I like I told you, I first found you uh, just playing with Chris Potter. I was completely blown away by your playing, Thanks, and we're yeah. gonna get into all that. Just like the feel, and we're we're gonna get into that. Cool. And I'm gonna fanboy a little bit on that. Um, okay. But before okay. before we do that, let's get a little bit of backstory. I like to build a little bit of context for the audience. Okay. Uh, I know you're an East Coast dude. You're what from Virginia, right? From Virginia, Chesapeake, Virginia. Yeah. Okay. So where is that? That is the southeastern part of the state. It's about um, maybe 20 miles inland from Virginia Beach. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sort of just how you got into playing a little bit yeah. of your backstory and then yeah. we can kind of fast forward up to a little bit more current. Sure. Sure. I started, man. Um, you know, I, I was born in uh, the mid seventies, uh, grew up in a house with, uh, you know, my parents were both school teachers. I had you know, three siblings and I'm the youngest. And I came along, there's a big gap between me and my brother. So it was like a 10 year gap. So I, I kind of was born on this Island in, time in my family um but you know my dad always had records in the house he was a big record guy he he loved um especially our instrumental r&b stuff from the late 70s he was way into david sanborn bob james grover washington jazz crusaders and so i'm listening to that music and i'm absorbing it at a very young age and i'm listening to those 
particularly I didn't even know I was, but I was starting to pick apart what the drummers were playing on those records, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and started to get inside some of that, um, some of that language. Um, and my brother, who was 10 years older than me, he uh, had a drum set. He was in marching band in school and he played a little bit at home. And I used to watch him play and I used to kind of like, you know, just kind of pick apart what he was doing too. Like, I'm like, okay, so this is how that works. And okay, that, oh, I see his, his, his hands are doing one thing, his feet are doing another thing. I'm like picking it apart, trying to figure out how to mimic and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my first, you know, experience with music actually was my mom bought a piano and uh, made all the kids take lessons. So I started taking lessons in the fifth grade. I absolutely hated it. I hated piano lessons. Me too. I hate, oh man, <laughs> I really hated it. So I took it for I took piano for a year, and I kind of learned sort of the basics. Um, and then I started to play the drums. I, when I went to sixth grade, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, I started to play drums in the school band. And I got my little you know Ludwig Acrylite, and I you know set it up and right. Was playing, you know, playing my little exercise, learning my rudiments, learning to read, basic note value, stuff like that. And a year later, I decided, man, I really want to take a, a shot at playing drum set because it looked really fun, you know. And so I broke out my, my, my brother's old kit, set it up, and just started to bash away. That was sort of the very beginning of it. And it was mostly, you know, I learned mostly by listening and watching. It was all sort of by rote. You know, I, I, I listened to records. I put them on my Walkman. I take them downstairs to the garage and, I, you know, sit down behind the drums and play along with the records that I was listening to. Right. Know? Right. And that's that I learned a lot. Um, you know, mimicry was kind of my way in. I learned a lot by just mimicking what I heard. You know, we talk about that a lot, too, that, yeah. that I think it's such an underrated thing. Yeah, absolutely. To just play along with records and yeah. play along with records and play along mm-hmm. with records, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like, because especially if you're playing along with a lot of older records, there's yeah. not a click. Nope. You know, it's not quantized. So like, nope. there's that, there's that natural sort of fluidity yeah. in that. And sometimes the song speeds up a little bit and sometimes, Absolutely. you know, so you kind of get like that ebb and flow, but, yeah. but that feel is, yeah. is there and you have to sort of learn you know, you start learning all these nuances of the tunes. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I've I've always been interested in music in real time, like like music with people. You know, like mm-hmm. um, you know, I th- I think it's interesting that we, you know, with with you know how how things work now, the way we make records is is so different now, yeah, than it was. Um, but you know, if you're really thinking about like you know what it means to play in a band or with other people that means that you're constantly negotiating time you're constantly negotiating where the beat is people might hear it one way you might hear it another so you're constantly negotiating that but that's something that you know even as a young kid i'm listening to you know omar hakim play on sting's record or i'm listening to you know steve gadd play on a bob james record or whatever and i'm listening to the way these guys are playing are using space, you know. Of course, I didn't realize it then, but sure. that's that's exactly what I was listening to. And and yeah, you're right. I mean, without a click track, without a you know, there's just a human element, a feel thing that's just there, that is not you know, it's not that it's absent from from music that is played with click or or on the grid or whatever, but it's just I think harder to replicate that um, when you're kind of really sticking to a grid, you know? Right. And you sort of had the, the best of both worlds of learning sort of the rudimental side with being Mm -hmm. in band Mm -hmm. and then playing along with records. Yeah. Because I, and I I don't want to generalize and say everybody, but I think that a lot of times it happens where people will push one way or the other. Right. Right. So they'll, Mm -hmm. you know, like they'll be, they can groove, but they don't have any, they don't have any chops or like Mm -hmm. it'll be really chop heavy, but they don't have any groove. That's true. And and I think, man, one of the things that was really important for me as a teenager was marching band. Mm-hmm. Marching band was really important. I was a serious drum corps nerd. I watched all the DCI competitions. Right, right. I was way into it. I was transcribing stuff. You know, it's like I was I was way in there. And, and I also it taught me a lot about reading my chops. My reading chops got so much better from playing in marching band. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you start to, to kind of build a vocabulary um and you start to sort of 
apply some of that science to the drum kit. You take it from the snare drum or wherever you're marching. I marched actually multi-toms in, in uh, high school. Okay. And I, I marched snare in college for, for my freshman year. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of taking some of that applied science and moving it to the to the drum set, you know, to play, moving some of those sextuplets in 30 seconds to the drum set, you know, so I could kind of play some of the, that fun stuff on the kit. But I was always still kind of obsessed with groove. I was always obsessed with like the feel, even the stuff that I was into as a teenager that was happening at the time, like Prince and living color and like, you know, um, Peter Gabriel and all that stuff. All the, all the drummers who played on those records had amazing feels, Mm -hmm. I, I think. And so I was always obsessed with that. I was really obsessed with it. What was, what was the approach of taking, taking the stuff that you were learning in marching band and taking all of this, let's for lack of a better word all this technical stuff mm-hmm. and getting it to sound musical on the kit. yeah yeah because you know there's a disconnect yeah. there a lot of times mm-hmm. i agree i agree um yeah you know one of the things that i uh have often you know it's interesting i find myself doing it more and more now i think i did it a lot more when i was a kid and wasn't aware but um i have a tendency to vocalize when i play um and uh what do you, you know, mean by I, that? When when I when I play, man, I find myself like, uh, you know, singing the parts, or or my mouth is moving while I play, or I'm I'm actually kind of, sort of getting into like, uh, kind of a, a vocalization of the drum part. So mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that that you know a, a hip hop producer might beatbox what he's going to program on a on an MPC, right. I find myself doing the same thing. And you know, sometimes you see a lot of jazz musicians, a lot of pianists or um, guitarists. Who you see their you see their mouths moving while they play. Right, Jimmy Smith I, used to do that all the time. Jimmy Smith does it a lot. And, yeah. yeah, 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 and and I think that there's something um, there's a very kind of primal connection between um, the voice and uh, the, the the drum. And this is this is you know getting to this idea of taking chops or taking you know um, marching band stuff that's kind of written sort of densely, finding a way to 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 sing it you know like when i would i would read the, the music and i'd read the figures and i would sing the parts you know before i mm-hmm. played them um and then when i sat down to the drum set there was kind of a melodic thing i could apply so you know you're like playing a sex template and you're breaking it up over the snare drum to the toms to the floor tom to the kick there's a melody there it goes from high to low you know mm-hmm. so when i would play some of those those uh parts and kind of speak that drum ease that we all speak, you know, black into black, you know, that, that <laughs> stuff. I, I found myself, you know, th- there's a melody there that I could kind of use to make it musical. You know, mm. um, I feel like if you are just thinking of it in terms of, of, of note values and sounds, that's one thing. But if you're thinking about it melodically, that's another thing, you know? Right. Um, and so if you listen to some of, you know, like really, really great drum soloists, people like uh, Max Roach or people like, um, you know, Buddy Rich, I think, was a great soloist, um, you know, and, and people like Jack DeJanette, who's, you know, a, a beautiful soloist. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's always something melodic in the way they play. Tony Williams played melodically, you know. Right. So I just I feel like that that is a, a thing that I come back to a lot when I play now. And I don't I don't know if it's. You know, um, I don't. I don't know where it really started for me, but I always was attracted to this idea of rhythmic melodies. This idea of like turning the different pitches of the drum kit into like a melodic, um, into a melodic phrase. Sure, it yeah. sort of reminds me. It reminds me of when I, f- not because I played piano and all that. Okay. Uh, I played piano for like nine years, okay. and so if you need okay. anybody to play "Mary Had a Little Lamb," now okay. I, can, <laughs> okay. I, I can do it. Um, okay. But when I started playing drums, I could still read the rhythm, right? But I guess there was this there was this thing that I didn't understand, or that I didn't I I didn't know that I wasn't doing it, but actually hearing the entire note value, right? Like if you take a quarter note on the drums, like whether you're playing a quarter note or an eighth note or sixteenth note, if you hit it on a sim like a hi hat on a closed hi hat, right? They right. all sound the same. Exactly. You know. Exactly. And I yeah. think, and from what I'm I'm getting from what you're saying is that you're you were taking this stuff that was all you know that was all 
boxed in in this, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the marching world, mm-hmm. and really taking this stuff and hearing melodically and actually hearing those note values and sort of respecting those note values and elongating what you're playing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, man. I'm, I'm, <laughs> there's a dog in here, my girlfriend's <laughs> dog, and he's got a chew toy. And it's he's, all good. He's like, that's, that's a little squeaking that you're That's hearing. the beauty of the Drummer's yeah. Resource Podcast. We, uh, don't yeah, cut, we don't cut anything out, man. Okay, so that's, beautiful. That's like, and he's really following me around, man. He's like, play with me. Yeah, and, of course. So I'm going to have to like, uh, I'm going to have to ditch him a little bit. Yeah, okay, he's in there. <laughs> Once in a while, you'll hear like, my 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 cat, my studio cat, okay. meowing once in a while okay. in some of the episodes. So it's okay. a, we're pet okay. friendly here too. Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think, and also, man, you know, this is another thing that I learned um, early on is touch and dynamics can create a difference in tone between you know from you know like no matter what you're playing, you're playing successive sixteenth notes, so a sixteenth note pattern on the hi-hat you're playing you know you're playing a dense uh dense rhythmic material around the drum kit you know if depending on how you're playing your touch determines sort of the melodic content sort of the emphasis you know what i mean and it kind mm-hmm. of changes the feel too you know so if you're playing with um with that in mind if you're playing sort of dynamically um, then you, you kind of do create a, a sort of melodic shape um, on the drum kit, you know. And I and, right. I and I've I think that that was sort of a very early lesson I learned. I think I learned it from watching and listening to drummers like Omar and Steve Gadd, and I mean, you know, even Bernard Purdy. I think is a very melodic drummer. His mm-hmm. his grooves are so melodic, like you want to sing the parts when you hear him play. Right. You know, right. So I, I think that there is that. But also, you know, when you're talking about technical, like you're talking about playing licks and talk, playing like solos and playing a lot of chops. Yeah, there are drummers who are really good at that. And there are drummers who, you know, I think Vinny Kaliuta is great at that. Like sure. he plays a lot of chops, but it's always very melodic. The stuff he plays is like, wow, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's really playing some great ideas, right. singable ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, man, I think that there is uh, a way um, to, 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 to make the chop stuff musical and 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 it's something that you try for as a drummer to play musically in every context right right yeah. so what does what's a, a normal practice routine look like for you or what did it look like because i think now i'm guessing mm-hmm. in where you are in your career your practice routine is a lot different maybe yeah. not as regimented as it used to be i think there's yeah. and correct me if i'm wrong but i think that everyone goes through everyone goes through that time where they practice six to eight hours a day, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, however long it lasts, it's whatever, two, three, four years. Right. And then now you're sort of in like growth slash maintenance mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But, yeah, absolutely. But back in the day, I want to boil down. And the reason why I want to boil down the essence of your playing is that, and we usually don't get super technical, but the, but for you, it's really important to me because one, every time I see you play or the, well, let me say the first time I saw you play, it's like first thing, man, this guy grooves his ass off, and then you soloed, and and I was blown away. I was like, oh, okay, he has a lot of facility too. Mm, mm. And anytime there's a video of you online or anything, it's like every comment is feel groove right, groove right. man. That feels so good. It like right. so. Let's right. I want to boil that down because I want to okay. help to extract some of that out mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. of what you're doing, and then mm-hmm. I'm gonna cop it all, and I'm gonna go into the practice room and okay steal all your, no just kidding but like man it you know like every time i watch you play i'm like man that's i like that's how i want to play you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you you seem to have it all man that's a that's a huge compliment from you thank you and very i much. mean that sincerely i'm not just telling you that i i thank you man i i you know for me yeah i did go through a phase where i was playing four six you know hours a day um high school college you know i was like in the practice room all the time and I was recording myself playing, which, you know, I would have my little boom box at home. And then I evolved to the micro cassette recorder with the mic on it. And, you know, it's interesting, man, when you play and you're in it, it might sound one way. But when you listen back, you can really hear there's really nowhere to hide when you're listening back to yourself playing. Right. You know, and from the very beginning of my journey i recorded myself playing a lot you know i really did 
and I would listen back and I would say, man, I would want to like try to cop because everything was, first of all, let me, let me just talk a little bit about, um, what practice means to me. Okay. Because practice for me, really practice was about, uh, creativity. That was really what practice was. I wanted to like execute something I couldn't do. So I would listen, I'd watch, I'd watch videos of Billy Cobham, I'd watch videos of Buddy Rich, I'd watch videos of, of whoever, and I would try to like execute stuff they couldn't do. How is it that he's getting those such clean singles? How is it that he's, he's playing those doubles on the bass drum? How is he getting such a sound out of the snare drum, you know? So right. I would just really concentrate on that. So my practice regiment was about, okay, I'd watch and listen and absorb as much as I could. And then I'd go to the drum set inspired and I'd really try to cop and mimic what I heard. So it, for instance, if I'm, if I'm watching like a Buddy Rich drum solo, my, my, my dad bought me this VHS of the Buddy Rich big band. I think it was some, somewhere in the eighties. I think he recorded this. Um, it was near the end of his life. And it was, you know, this huge epic like drum solo at the end of the thing and mm -hmm. watching it. And I could, you know, I never transcribed it formally, but I just watched it and, and tried to gather as much as I could. The great thing about those videos was there was so much, you could see so much of what his, what his hands were doing. You could see so much about, of his technique, you know, right, and right. you could really say, man, okay, so he's playing, he's playing all these singles sort of effortlessly. What is it about, what is it about his hands that, that allows him to do that? First of all, he's Buddy Rich. That's the first thing, <laughs> right? So there, there's that. But then there's like, okay, so how is he holding the sticks? When I'm checking out the rebound, what, what is he doing with his fingers underneath the sticks? How is he getting that? And I noticed that there were some things that he was doing that I was also seeing the guys in the drum corps videos do, some certain technical things that were allowing them to achieve those chops, you know? Mm -hmm. They wanted to achieve like the speed and the articulation of those chops. So I would, you know... Watch those videos over and over. We had slow motion on the VCR, so I could slow it down. I'm like, man, okay, I see what I see the technique here. So then I'd run to the drums, and I turn on my little boombox and I record it, and I would really try to cop what I heard Buddy do. It was it was always inspired by something musical, some kind of musical event. Right. That was the first thing. I never just practiced for practicing sake. I never did that. It was always connected to trying to achieve a musical idea. Ah. Uh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because sure. I, I know a lot of drummers who are really good at practicing. You know what I mean? Like, I, right. I know, like, guys who really, they're masters at practicing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes time to play in live situations with other musicians and really have those sort of tough negotiations around time and all the X factors that occur while you're playing live, um, some of the things that they're practicing, some of the things that they've sort of uh, firmed up in their practice regiment don't really work because you have to be able to adjust that. Right. It has to be about, you know, okay, you have to be using that practice regimen to get better at playing with people. Right. You know, you know it's um, funny that you, I, I'm, I'm, I apologize no, for cutting you off. No, no, no. I'm famous for doing that, by the way. But <laughs> I had a conversation with my buddy Daniel Glass uh, mm -hmm. when we were at NAM, and I was saying – so basically when I started Drummer's Resource, I consciously was like, all right, I'm not going to tour. I'm not going right. to really like hustle for gigs. I'm just going to really work on growing this and then right. get back to playing. Right. And I noticed that my practice routine, I started practicing less and less and less and less. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't enjoying practicing. Right. And then I was like, because I'm not going onto the bandstand and using that as a proving ground. Exactly. Exactly. And for me, I'm the same way as you, that I practice because I want to play music, not because mm -hmm. I want to learn how to play singles between my hands and my feet. Exactly. So Exactly. Once yeah. that proving ground started to go away, my excitement and my want to keep practicing started to dwindle. Right. Which is an interesting concept for you to say that. That really yeah. like solidifies, I guess, that maybe I'm not the only one who thinks that way. Oh, not, not at all, man. Not at all. I mean, I think we are all in it to make music. And I think that's, that's – I think we should be at least. Right. Um, you know, I think that, you know, as you grow as a musician and as you're playing more – um, I think, you know, and also, man, I, I just, just as a, as an aside, and I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want the lightning to rain down on me. I don't want to cause a big, huge controversy, but I do think that you're learning. I don't, I wouldn't call it practice, but I do think that you're learning on the bandstand too. You're going to 
play stuff on the bandstand and try things on the bandstand that may or may not work. And you're going to learn from that, you know, in the same way that you would learn from trying things that may or may not work in the practice room. Mm -hmm. The difference is you're learning them in real time with an audience and with uh, a group of musicians, you know. So the, the learning experience is a shared one rather than one that occurs in isolation, you know. And I think that those shared learning experiences are, I think, a little bit more impactful if you're a musician who is actually growing, you know, as a player. Right. Um, that, that's the thing. I think that, you know, like I said, man, I know tons of guys, man, who are really, really good at, at shedding. Like they're, they, they shed all the time. But then it's like, okay, you get to a gig and you play with people. And for whatever reason, it's not connecting with the other musicians. It's not landing on the audience. And you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe it's because the intention is about acquiring knowledge as opposed to sharing music. You know what I mean? Right. So you want to acquire all this knowledge about how to play the drums and how to get better at playing the drums and how to play, you know, more clean and how to play, um, you know, faster and, you know, all these other sort of stuff. But it's like applying that science in real time with real people is a totally different thing. It's totally sure. different, sure. you know? And, and, and I think that, it's the most inspiring aspect of it for me is applying that science right. with people. And that's where I really learned the most, you know, and that's what makes me want to go back. Oh, you know what? I really need to go and work on, I really need to work on relaxing when I play time. Now, you know, one of the things I focus on now when I practice is relaxing because I have seen so many videos of myself and watched so many and heard so many recordings of myself. And I, I see there's certain tension in the way that I play. There's a certain, I feel much more relaxed now than I was maybe say five or 10 years ago. But Do you feel like you're tensing up or you feel like you're pushing? I feel like I'm tensing up and which, okay. which, which leads to pushing if I'm right. not careful. Sure. You know, the tension is what is what is the thing I'm trying to avoid. So the anxiety around what I'm playing, does it work? Does, so there's, there's a relaxed confidence that I'm starting to feel more and more as a drummer that allows me to sort of really just lay back and say, okay, you know what? These events that are going to come, I don't have to force these events. I'm just going to play mm-hmm. and I'm just going to have fun. I'm just going to enjoy the sound of the drum. I'm going to enjoy playing with the band and we're just going to, you know, make some music. Um, but I find myself, you know, now when I am sitting down to practice, I'm really working on relaxing. That's, that's my main thing, mm-hmm. you know, is really working on that relaxed confidence around, um, you know, playing whatever I'm playing, playing time, regardless of the of the meter, regardless of how technically difficult the stuff is, you want to just play it as relaxed as possible. Right. Um, and I think. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna say that um, when I go back and watch those videos of Buddy Rich, Steve Gadd, Billy Cobham, Omar, etc., um, I see that relaxation in their playing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I see it. And I'm like, oh, I, now I get it. Now I get it. This is this is the ultimate. This is the thing I'm I'm striving for. Is this idea of sitting down to the drums and playing, and, and it feels just as natural as you're sitting down to eat a plate of food. You know what I mean? Right. That, that's exactly what it should feel like. You sure. just sit down and you know, and, and and just start. You know, and it's it's it should be as natural as that. Right. No agenda. No. You know. Yeah. Right. Great news from Evans Drumheads. Now you can turn your drumheads into a work of art with their custom drumheads. All you have to do is upload your design and they print it using high quality photo resolution images directly onto the drumhead. And they're available in sizes everywhere from 16 to 26. And let me tell you, these things look amazing. They sent me a bass drum head with the Drummer's Resource logo on it. I was blown away. It looks so cool. And the best part is you can save 20% by using the promo code DRUMMER20, DRUMMER and then the numbers 20. So if you go to evansdrumheads.com, use the promo code DRUMMER20, you can not only save 20%, but you can also get yourself some amazing looking heads. The offer only runs until December 31st. So make sure you do it today. Go to evansdrumheads.com, use the promo code DRUMMER20. 
If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. There's one thing that you said that stuck out to me about the about you were saying before about playing melodically mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times as drummers we are we sort of get in this space. I know that I've been guilty of this too where you're sort of playing time and you're like music 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 and then you're like okay, Phil Mm-hmm. non-musical just mm-hmm. like i have to fill up this space right okay let me get back to playing music again <laughs> right, right. but i think that if you can get in the space of where it's like music 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 okay i'm doing this fill because the music is warranting mm-hmm. a fill here mm-hmm. and i need to make that melodic as well exactly maybe that'll keep me loose maybe that'll keep me from rushing because most people rush when they when they especially like switching between subdivisions yeah sure you know sure. it's a common thing but I think I like what you're saying of well, let's if you're just playing music the whole time mm-hmm. and you're relaxed and you're playing melodically, you're not mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I'm I'm changing subdivision. It's just like the music yeah. is just going to dictate what I'm playing. Exactly, exactly. I think that you know, just follow follow the melody. And I know that that's, that's so sounds, hard, man. It's hard. It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. And 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 when you when you hear drummers who can really do mm-hmm. it, the most musical guys who can really do it. It's amazing what they can, especially in the context of like a live, um, live improvisation, sure. you know. Um, and so I point to guys like Brian Blade. I point to guys like uh, Mark Juliana. I point mm-hmm. to guys like Eric Harland, um, guys who can, who are who play in the most melodic ways. Um, sure. Kendrick Scott is great at mm-hmm. this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I point to other guys like Chris Dave, who is also great, but he's he's totally different, right? You know what I mean? His with the fills that he's going to add are coming from sort of he, there's there's a lot of abstraction in the way Chris plays. Oh yeah, totally. It's it's really incredible. I mean, I, the, some of the ideas his his ideas seem to come out of left field, but they make a lot of musical sense. And mm-hmm. he 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 can like really navigate a lot of terrain because he's completely open on the drums. You know, right. and right. Uh, I feel like the guy can play anything he wants to play. Um, and he's one of those guys that you watch and you say, okay, so he's just going to pivot to the left and play something completely out of left field. And it might sound jarring and it might sound strange and it might be really abstract, but he's going to bring you back to, he's definitely going to bring you back to right. where you were. Sure. There's a, there's a path there, you know? Right. Um, but I think, in, in, I think he is following, I think he's thinking melodically or, or, you know, in a, in a linear way. Right. Um, you know that's 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 really my 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 end game as a drummer is to think melodically. Of course, yeah. So I'll put this question on you because I get this question a lot. Mm. Of okay, I know that I'm supposed to be serving the music. I know that I'm supposed to be playing melodically. I know that mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be playing what the music is dictating. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. What happens if I'm not hearing that? Right. Like, what happens if like how do I, I you know like I get this all the time like Nick how do I know what I I don't know what the music is telling me or where yeah. it's telling me to go yeah yeah and it's yeah. like uh, such an intangible oh boy it is man it is I, you know yeah that's the that's the lifelong question man it's like what <laughs> what what do you play when you don't know what to play right like, that's the thing you're like I think or, or if you think that like what you're playing is really happening and then somebody yeah. comes up to you and you're like man that's it's not happening. Yeah, it's not happening. Yeah, right. right. I, I've I mean, had that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, man. I was, um, you know, I played. I got the. I I got really lucky, man. I got to play with Betty Carter um, right. before she passed away. Right. And um, she's sort of like a rite of passage for a lot of people too. She really is, man. Yeah. She she is she had she has become sort of her own music school. She was her own music school. So right. many great musicians. And she's um, really rough on drummers, right? Yes, from absolutely. what I've heard. Yeah, absolutely. Now you know I played with Betty um, on and off for the last you know three years of her life. I did you know a few gigs with her here and there. Ralph Peterson was her was her main guy, and mm-hmm. Eric Harlan was also doing the gig too. Um, but but you know one of the things that I one of my stories I remember 
uh, speaking of someone walking up to you on a gig. So we're, we're, we're at the Blue Note. We played a week there. And we're playing a ballad. We're playing Every Time We Say Goodbye. Super, super slow. Betty played ballads super slow. Mm-hmm. And she's stretching the form. And it's like, you know, we're just floating through it. And I'm playing brushes and I'm playing, you know, all this like colorful stuff. And I think I sound really great. And so in the middle of the A section, Betty, you know, in off mic, she comes up to me. She says, it's too noisy to me. Right. And I freeze. Like, what do you do when, right. you know, it's too noisy. So what she was saying to me was I was too busy behind her with the brushes. I was playing way too much stuff. I was cluttering the music. I was cluttering the, the time. What makes Betty's thing work is the openness in the space. You know, right. that, that's what made her thing work. So immediately, I, okay, so I freeze and I don't play anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so now I, I went from playing too much noise to making no sound at all. Right. So um, <laughs> Bruce Flowers, who was the pianist in the band, um, he just kind of looked over at me and he, he gave me this smile because she was hard on piano players too. Oh, she was she? really hard on piano players, yeah. Um, but so so I ended up kind of sort of you know kind of ramping back in, and I'm I'm playing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And we got to the end of the tune, and uh, after the gig, she says, you know, listen, um, you have to stay out of my way. That was she said. She have you have to stay out of the way of the music. That was the thing. Don't clutter the music. Don't clutter it. That was the thing she said to me. You know, it's just too much clutter. Mm-hmm. And and you know. I have I have over the years had a few other experiences with that. You know, there might have been a time when Dave Holland said to me, hey, man, give me a little more space on the symbol. Or Chris would say, you know, we're going to play. Chris Potter would say, you know, hey, man, we're going to play smaller here. So we're going to build to this big thing later. So give me a little less here. Generally, man, generally the rule is when in doubt, lay out. That's the thing. When you're when you're feeling that that. You know, what am I doing when you're not sure what you're doing? I think I think that's when it's time to listen. That's really when it's time to listen to the mm. band. So you're playing time, right? You're, let's say you're in a situation where you're playing, you're in a solo section and someone's playing, you know, like this extended thing. And you're you're finding yourself, OK, either you're playing all of your stuff all the time or you're finding yourself really not having any ideas. You're finding yourself, you know. I, I always revert revert to this idea of like, okay, make it a conversation. So Chris plays a phrase to me. I'm not going to interact with him. I don't feel like I need to um, comment on everything he plays. Right, like but chasing I'm, his tail sort of. I don't have to chase him. No, I don't have to chase him. I don't have to like interact because that's going to crowd him too. Right. What I might do is maybe he'll play something, you know, at the beginning of the form. He'll play some kind of rhythmic idea. And maybe a few bars later, maybe 12 bars later, 16 bars later, I might bring that idea back, you know, mm. so that we get back into that. You know, we, we that it feels more like a conversation than um, two guys kind of battling or, or guys kind of cluttering up the music. You mm-hmm. know, um, it's a it's a very there's a, it's a very mysterious process, man. Like there's no there are no hard rules around it. But I do think that overall, when you're playing, if you really want to play musically, you have to think in terms of conversation rather than, um, you know, like talking over each other or, right. or, or playing over each other. You know, I think there has to have, be that musical conversation sure. there. And, um, you know, I, I think about the guys again. I, I think about guys past and present who were really great at that. I think about Elvin. I think about, um, you know, Elvin was the, one of the more musical drummers <laughs> who ever lived and he was really good at just like he could play and and he, the time never slowed down. It never got soggy. It never got tired. But the ideas, the way he played the drums, his sound, his feel, it was always fresh because right. I, I feel like he played with patience. You know, I feel like he played with a lot of patience, um, even patience though he played a lot. Hard, of st- man. Patience is hard. That patience is hard. And it's so something hard. you work on your entire career as a musician. man. It's it's, it's really difficult, you know. Yeah. Yep. When you don't know what you're doing, it's time to listen. I love that. Gonna, I think I think so. I think I, that's, I agree with you. I yeah, totally yeah. agree. One hundred percent, man. Uh, so let, I want to talk a little bit uh, career wise mm-hmm. and sort of touch base on 
sort of how you grew your career, uh, sort of what things like, I, I heard a great analogy, Nate Smith or Nate Smith, uh, um, Nate Morton, who was on here from mm-hmm. place for the voice said, you know, right. success in the music business or with anything is sort of like building a bridge, but you're yeah. or walking across a bridge that you're building as you're exactly it's true it's true and that is a very good that's a very good metaphor and uh and i thought it was great but i i love to hear sort of how because a lot of people you moved you know you moved from virginia you go to new york and a lot of people move into different towns or they're they're saying what's the i actually just got an email about it uh two days ago Mm -hmm. asking hey is it is it really that's the way to build your career just go out to like open mic nights and meet people and things like Mm -hmm. that so Mm -hmm. i'd love to hear your approach of sort of how how you grew your career to where mm. it is now? Mm. Well, my career, um, it, it's it's just a. You're right about building a bridge. Well, Nate is right about building a bridge as you're crossing it because um, y- y- the other thing is you really don't know when you're building the bridge. You know, you have you really don't know what what what, what who, who's going to come along that's going to actually be a part of the bridge you're building. Right. Uh, so you just kind of have to be open to you know as many different things as many different people as you um as you can especially if you're a young musician um i think it's it's really important to say yes more than you say no um you know what i mean i think it's if if you are a young guy and you're like let's say you're 22 21 just out of school and you're like okay i really want to play music so people are coming up to you these people might come up to you with some harebrained cross-eyed ideas about man i wake up this gig you know it pays fifty dollars for four hours but we're playing at such and such and if you really like the music if you really like what these guys are doing say yes to it because you just never know right um so for me it was um you know i was playing all through high school i was playing in jazz bands like the citywide jazz band i was also playing in um the wind, like the wind symphony, there was a, a wind ensemble called Tidewater Winds, which was led by this guy named Sidney Berg, who was, um, you know, really kind of a big wig in the Norfolk classical music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and playing with Sidney Berg, he was, you know, super hard conductor, really tough on me. But playing with him, he wrote my letter of recommendation for school. You know what I mean? And he saw potential in me. So he was part of the reason that I got accepted to James Madison, you know? Mm. And so, you know, again, you just never know when you're building the bridge. You know, you, you never know what relationships are actually working to help you build the bridge. So, you know, I started JMU. The first summer after JMU, I uh, work at King's Dominion, which is uh, just outside of Richmond. It's an amusement park. Amusement park, right? Yeah. Yeah, Paramount's King's Dominion. I worked there summer of 1993 and the summer of 1994. Um, while I'm there... Um, I meet, um, the second summer I meet really good friend, Brad, who, who's becoming this guy, Brad Sharp. And he meets his woman who, who becomes his wife, Keisha Sharp. Keisha Sharp is a famous actress. She's doing really great things now. And you just never know where those relationships will take you. You know, if you keep in touch with people, if you're cool, you just, like I said, you never know when you're building the bridge. So just kind of stay open and stay cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but from that, from the 1994 thing, um, from King's Dominion, I go back to school and um, I meet some guys who are at JMU who did the Disney Grammy band in in Epcot at Epcot, and they say, "Hey man, you should definitely audition for the Disney Grammy band. You know, you should send in a tape and you should do your thing and just you know, just 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 do it. You know, you never know, right? So I do it and I get it. I get the gig. I get the Disney Grammy." Uh, it's, it's called the Disney Grammy All American College Jazz Band. It's a mouthful, but it was like you know, <laughs> kids from all over the country. We come and we play. We have guest artists every week, and we're sight reading every week, oh. which was incredible. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What a learning! What a thing! And, and you know, Diane Reeves came, and Ramsey Lewis came, Joe Williams came, Arturo Sandoval came. So we're playing with really great guests, you know, and I'm meeting all these people. So it's, it's amazing. So in that, uh, at Disney, I meet a young trombonist named Andre Hayward and Andre had just done Betty Carter jazz ahead. And he says, Hey man, you should audition for Betty Carter. Right? So I said, great. So I, I sent in the tape and she, we, I, the small group from JMU, we go to IAJE the next year, which I don't even think IAJE exists anymore. 
But um, we go to IHAE the next January. We're in Atlanta. Betty sees me play and she says, hey, I want you to do jazz ahead. So my, my point is it's all connected. Right. You know, sure. like you just never know who you're going to meet that's going to lead to um, building a career. And and so, you know, from there, it's it's uh, it's Betty Carter and then it's uh, VCU, you know, and I do a grad program there and I meet Dave Holland there, you know. So by the time I moved to New York, um, I'd had a lot of good fortune in terms of meeting musicians who could help me to build a career and who could who saw something in me that they liked, you know. Right. Um, so I, I feel like I, you know, by staying open and by doing as many things as I could and by being focused on it. Um, you know, there's there's an old saying, you know, there, I think it was uh, this movie producer, Samuel Goodwin. He used to say, the harder I work the luckier I get, (laughs) you know, I think it's a great quote, you know, I think, and it's like, man, it's true, you know, and it's like, the harder I worked as a kid, the harder, the more I said yes to, the luckier I got, you know, and, and, uh, you know, Dave, meeting Dave, I met Chris Potter through Dave, it's all connected, you know, it's all connected, I met Adam Rogers through Chris Potter, you know, and there's, there's all this stuff, Um, so anyway, man, I, you know, I just, in, in terms of how I built a career, um, it certainly wasn't an in, like a step-by-step intentional plan, but I always was like, okay, here are the things I want to do, and I need to stay open to every opportunity that comes my way that could help me to build those things that I want. Um, so that that's you know that's my advice to anybody you know like younger guys who are listening or whatever. It's like stay open, be cool, be patient, you know, like just kind of and just say yes as much as you can, right. you know. Yeah. It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices. So that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about dream symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com. It's funny that you say that about about how you know you don't know where this thing is going to lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, fifteen years ago or sixteen years ago, yeah. I got this scholarship from Peisty. Mm-hmm. My point of contact, uh, actually, who I just texted, I have a call with at one o'clock, but mm-hmm. uh, or around there. Uh, mm-hmm. But so third, fifteen years ago, this guy's my point of contact. I stay in touch with him, mm-hmm. and. Five years ago, he introduces me to a guy who's running a drumstick company. I start helping this guy with this drumstick company. Right. Now he and I are best friends. Right. And like I'm help, you know, like advising on this drumstick company with him. And this is a relationship that that someone introduced me to 15 years ago. Right. And right. It's like you never know. It, you it's, never know. You have you, no idea. You have no idea, man. You have no idea. And and also, it it works both ways. Your name travels further than you you will. Yeah. You know, your name travels much further than you ever will. So it, you know, is, if you're cool and kind to people and you're, you know, kind of gracious and you, you do the best you can as you're, you're, you're working, that travels, man, that, that kind of reputation travels. And it, you know, there are a lot of really great musicians who sit at home because they don't, they can't really, the, the interpersonal thing is not really together, you know? Right. And, you know, 90% of the time that you're on tour with musicians, with other musicians, it, you know, you're only going to spend 90% of that time is spent off stage. Right. So you it's spent at the airport, at the hotel, at the restaurant, you know, so you have to be a functional person <laughs> sure. to, to, to get along with cats while you're on, you know, on the band. So, so, you know, it, it, it's to your benefit to, to, you know, just stay open and be cool to people and, and you just never know what's down the pike. I think a lot of people get anxious too, when they go to meet people Mm -hmm. or, you know, go to network with people and they're like, I don't know what to say, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know what to, what to offer them or, you know, and it's, and I've even been in that situation. Like you're at Nam and you meet like one of your heroes. That's right. You're like, man, I I just want to meet him. I want to meet him. And then you meet him. You're like, hi. And then you don't know what else to say. Exactly. Oh man. It's happened. It's happened to me. You know, I I remember, yeah, I I remember meeting Chick Corea once at, uh, at IAJE and it was just, you know, I totally geeked out, didn't have anything to say to him. Same thing the first time I met Herbie, which was many years later. You know, it's like, oh, my God, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've had a chance to meet a few um, 
great drummers, you know, but a lot of the guys that I've met have been sort of in my age group, you know, like right. I, I met Keith recently, Keith Carlock recently. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's a little easier to approach a guy like that because, you know, he, he's amazing, but he's also kind of in a, in a sort of a peer kind of, kind of range, you right. know, age sure. range. Sure. Um, but, you know, I don't know what I would say if I met, you know, if, if James Gadsden walked in, you know, I don't know what I'd say if I, if I was at the drum shop and all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, Bernard Purdy walks in. What do you say? You know what I mean? What do you, <laughs> you, what do, you do? I'm going to tell you a funny James Gadsden story real quick. Okay. So okay. I had him on the podcast yeah. and he was amazing. Yeah. And I told him that I was going to come out. I was like, I'm coming out to LA and, uh, and I said, I'm going to come visit you. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, oh yeah, definitely. Right. So I'm in LA for like a day Yeah. and my phone rings and I didn't know who it was. And I answered and he goes, Nick, James Gadsden. <laughs> Okay. And I'm like, oh my God, this James Gatson. Okay. And he goes, you've been in LA for 24 hours. My phone hasn't rung yet. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, I didn't know. And like, but he's so sweet. that he's just yeah. like, he's like, all right, well, call me back whenever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But That's like, great. so it's like. Man, yeah. you're yeah, you're James Gatson. You're he's as James cool Gatson. as you are just, on the record. That's right. He's he's the man, man. He's, he's the man. For so, my money, so pound nice for pound, man. the hardest groove. Like in in in, and I say, you know, top five all time. Oh you know, yeah, for me, definitely, yeah. hands down, man. Hands he's, down. He is. Uh, he is definitely one of my favorites. Absolutely, yes, and just like sure. the nicest dude in the world. Yeah, for sure. You know, like for sure. So like some of the stories he has are crazy. That like he would go out on tour and like. He didn't have symbols, you know. Right. He's like, I was like, why? He's like, I didn't know I needed symbols. <laughs> like he was, he started and like within a year was like one of the top call Motown musicians. Yeah, sure. It's insane. Sure. Yeah, absolutely man. insane. I mean, he just has a feel that can't you know. There's only five guys on the planet who can do what he does. Right. You know, so right. It's amazing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So let's talk about your record. So yeah. you have a new record coming out. That's meant tomorrow. Well, it's I, com- coming out tomorrow. Tomorrow, February third, baby. Awesome. Yeah. So this will be this interview will come out. Uh, so the 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 record is now released. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, Great. Okay. Uh, it'll be out in two weeks. So awesome. So yeah. it is uh, postcards from everywhere. It's actually on Ropadope Records. Who I know Lewis from Ropadope. Okay. Um. He so Ropadope had a record has records and then the the clothing side of yes, things. Yes, absolutely. And their office was in my hometown, so got to absolutely, Lewis a absolutely. Lot, so. Lewis is a great guy, man. Stand up dude. Definitely is. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us about the record, man. I'm excited about it. Oh man, I, I'm stoked too. Um, it uh, it is sort of uh, this intersection of R and B and jazz musically. It is uh, kind of like a, 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 a distillation of like the soundtrack of my, you know childhood sure you know the the records my dad used to play um and it's definitely coming out of that thing but it's also presented through my own eyes having been somebody who's been in new york now for 15 years and has sort of discovered this musical family that i'm presenting on the record so the, the family is like a big idea around the the record ergo ergo the title kinfolk you know mm-hmm. um but i i just want, really wanted to kind of tell a story about okay here's where i'm from and here's where I am, and here's kind of the stuff that has happened along the way with the music. Um, and yeah, I, I, I find myself really giddy about um, sharing it, man, because I really think that it kind of sums up the last, uh, you know, decade or so of, of my path as a, my journey as a musician. Right. Um, I, I uh, was lucky to get. Um, the band that I have on the record, Jaleel Shaw's on it. Chris Bowers plays on the record. Jeremy Most, great guitarist that not a lot of people know about, but he's really fantastic. Um, Fema Efron, who I've played with for a long time with mm-hmm. Chris Potter and Dave Holland. Chris Potter and uh, Adam Rogers, who's also on the record. Adam appears on the record. And then um, I have a great uh, singer and songwriter and lyricist named Amo Watt, who wrote all the lyrics that feature vo- for the songs that feature vocals. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. She's from Brooklyn. Um, Gretchen Parlato sings one of those songs that she that Amo wrote, and um, and uh, then you know have a couple of guest appearances. Lionel Luecke is on the record. Um, Dave Holland appears on a couple tracks on the record, nice. um, and Chris Potter appears on on a track on the record too. And so I feel like it's a really complete um, portrait of of where I am 
now, or, yeah. or at the very at the very least, where I was when I started the project. You know, I really wanted to say something about family and this idea of identity, and, and you know, it's all in in the project. Um, so, man, I, yeah, I'm stoked. I, I, I we've got a big um, got a show uh, at New Blue February third. I'm sure that's going to already have happened by the time we air by the time this airs, but um, I'm I'm stoked about it. Uh, so that oh yeah, that's tomorrow then. Yeah. Um, so it's weird talking about tomorrow, but when yeah. the people are listening to it, it's not going to be tomorrow. Right, right, right. So, uh, so now if anybody, whoever's listening, you can go, you can get it on iTunes. Yes. Um, you can go to natesmithmusic.com. All the info is on there as well. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to order it now because I have a flight tomorrow. So oh, excellent. I'm going to, uh, listen to it on the flight. Excellent, brother. So, excellent. Dig in. And also, yeah. um, it's, it's available on Bandcamp as well. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, given what Bandcamp is doing um, you know, in terms of their 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 political stance, I, I encourage people to 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 download from Bandcamp if they can. Um, okay, I'll get it from and, there. Can I pre-order yeah. from there, or just order it tomorrow morning? Maybe you can order. You know, I think it's going to go live at midnight tonight. Um, I think it's going to go live at like twelve oh one tonight at Bandcamp, but okay. I, I have to double check that. But you can pre-order it on iTunes as well. Right, you but can. I'll just get it on Bandcamp tonight. Yeah. Because Bandcamp, I think the other thing with Bandcamp is that you get the artwork too, and you get like the full, the full a, experience, a, and and like you get different. Uh, I think you get a higher resolution audio download too. Okay, um, it's such it, a yeah. it's such a lost art, man, of like yeah, buying a record and like going through the liner notes. And I know, like, I know. It's sad. Yeah, we we will be releasing this on vinyl as well. So, that's um, awesome. That's what yeah. I'm that'll about. that'll happen a little later in the year. Awesome. Yeah, I man. I also I want to encourage people to follow you on social media, especially mm. on Instagram. Like your yeah. Instagram's blowing up, and you're always you're always. I think I feel like the internet has been really good for you. It has, it has. You I, know, and, I, and I, yeah, it has, man. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just gonna like because before, like I guess you know, even like five six years ago, I couldn't mm -hmm. find a lot of stuff online mm -hmm. from you, and now mm -hmm. like you have your Instagram page, you have like twenty some thousand followers on there, and yeah. like yeah. you're putting videos up, and that's right. It's. I just. I don't know. I just love being able to scroll through and checking out some of the stuff that you're doing, and then yeah. you know, watching those little clips that you put up and playing, and it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I, I gotta. I gotta shout out my man Jose James. Um, he he really is the uh, sort of the the game changer for me in terms of my social media uh, exposure and the reach because you know when I was playing with him all last year, every night that we played, he would film my drum solos. He would, he would tape the drum solos on his phone and mm. he would put, post them up. And he started the series called The Legendary, right? And so it was like The Legendary Part One. And so it started in March. And all the every gig, he would do a drum solo. He'd put one up. And I'd play a drum solo. He'd, he'd record it. And so we're up to like The Legendary 37 now. Nice. But, but it started with his page and him posting these drum solos. And his followers started to share... The, the the solos and they started to it started to sort of viralize man some of those videos it's it's amazing the view counts man like they're in the millions you know? wow it's it's incredible so um needless to say my facebook fan page started to tick up i'm at seventy thousand now on my facebook page i'm at twenty two thousand on instagram and it, it's all happened in the space of a year and um it, it really is something and, and and you know so i'm really grateful for people who love the videos and who share them and I just feel really, really grateful to 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 witness it. You right. Know? And as an outsider, I look at it as it's great because you can one, you can keep an eye on the stuff that you're doing, right. but also you get like a little bit of you know inspiration watching you play or like yeah. checking out some of the clips. So as an outsider, I really dig it, man. I'm glad absolutely, you're doing man, it. absolutely, man. And I'm I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm hopefully going to be be doing some um, sort of. Uh, like higher quality drum videos soon, like like really sort of like cinematic uh, nice. looking drum videos. Yeah, that's that's in the plan for for this year. I dig it. Yeah, I dig yeah. it, man. So for anyone listening, they can go to natesmithmusic.com. That's right. Find out all the info. Also in the show notes of the podcast, I'll put all the links of where you can find Nate's music, yeah. all of his Instagram or all of his social media channels, and and all of that stuff. And uh, Nate, I just want to I want to thank you publicly for one for being a part of this, two for the music that you're putting out into the world, and uh, it was it's been a long time coming to have you on the podcast, and I really do appreciate it. And as I said, man, I'm a big fan of of your work, your playing, 
and uh, it's, it's a real honor to have you. Man, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate your patience. I really appreciate your persistence. We, uh, no we worries. Tr- it was a long time coming. It was well I'm, worth I'm, the wait, my it friend. It was well worth it. Well worth it, brother. I really appreciate you. Thank you, man. Absolutely, man. And for everybody out there, go pick up the new record. Please. This actually worked out perfectly that, you, that yeah. you, the new record came out. So yeah. everybody go pick up that new record. And Nate, anytime you want to come back, man, I would love to have you. Absolutely, man. Thank you, Nate. All right, Nate. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. There you have it, the one, the only, Mr. Nate Smith, and you can check out all the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 594, and also, if you haven't already, please leave a rating or review. I would appreciate that. You can do it on iTunes. You know that. And Also, I have another mailing list that I send out on Mondays called Nick's Monday Mix, and you can sign up by going to nickruffini.com forward slash mix, M-I-X, and it's just an email that I send out once a week. That not only tells you about new episodes of this podcast and my other podcasts that have come out, but also music industry news or anything that I think that you'll think is interesting or that will help you in terms of mindset or playing or or anything. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's in there. So if you want to sign up for that, again, you can go to nickruffini.com forward slash mix, M-I-X. So it's N-I-C-K-R-U-F-F-I-N-I forward slash or dot com forward slash M-I-X. You get the picture. All right, I'm out of here. I got nothing else for you. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.